0: We uh, will be starting, uh, we're, we're starting a new, seas- uh, a new season and a new series called The Kingdom Among Us. Everyone say that. The Kingdom Among Us. The kingdom is not a place. The kingdom is not far off. The kingdom is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the kingdom of the heavens. The kingdom is the kingdom among us. And I say the kingdom uh, is... is um, a recurring Bible theme. It's a recurring theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was used 137 times, that phrase, the kingdom among us or the kingdom of God uh, in the New Testament, um, over 100 times in the Gospels. And the kingdom really is a central theme uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, which is why we're going to be reading through the Gospel of Matthew uh, in our time of prayer and fasting um, over the next 21 days starting tomorrow. Um, and we're going to be in the coming weeks really sharing and investigating and searching the Scripture. Uh, and, and acquainting ourselves with the sacredness, the nearness, the power, the blessing, the beauty of God's kingdom among us. Now, many of you over the probably the holidays had some fun, some fun times with family, some maybe some good time off. I don't know. Anybody? Or was it just all doldrums for everyone? No. <laughs> Well, one of the favorite things, um, my favorite part of the kind of the time off um, was actually we got, we got the opportunity to go to um, a, a candlelight um, service of, uh, of confession and communion at the Church of My Childhood. Um, and it was at 9 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve, and since we have little kids, we haven't really been able to go to anything like that in quite a few years. Um, And... I, it was just the beauty that was in the service. It's a liturgical church, um, and so um, there is this there is this call and response. There's prayers together. There's readings and responses of choruses and responses of carols. And it really seemed like the pastor was more like the conductor of a symphony. Um, than necessarily putting on a worship service for a congregation. Like we were all part of it together, um, declaring and confessing the gospel of the kingdom and the good news of Jesus Christ all together um, as one. We were all in it and we were all participating in it together. And it really just just deeply moved me. Um, And that may not be surprising to you, but it was surprising to me. And it was surprising to me because I didn't expect to be moved. I had attended the Christmas Eve candlelight service so frequently as a child that in my head, it had become dull and unoriginal. I thought I knew the rituals so well that in fact, I didn't know them at all. Sadly, this sums up much um, of how I remembered the church as a whole for a long time. And that is really the problem with familiarity, or over-familiarity. Familiarity actually breeds unfamiliarity. Um, and over time, we, we think we can know something that we don't really, we stop to know it at all. And eventually, as Geoffrey Chaucer said in the 14th century, in the tale of Melaby, he said, familiarity actually breeds contempt. We experience this at restaurants, Um, We like to go to the same restaurants, most of us. We have a few places that we we pick out and we go, and we like to order the same food over and over. And the more we become familiar with the place... Uh, the more we expect the best parts just to be part of the deal. It becomes the baseline. We expect our favorite dish to be on the menu, uh, and when it's not, then we become upset. We expect the service to be how it's always been, and then when it's not, we become upset. We expect the place to not have any young children or loud people in it or you know whatever it is. And all the, the things that we like, we become familiar with, we start begin to expect as part of the baseline. And only the things that come to interrupt or to disrupt, or to frustrate or different things, those become more and more amplified. Can I get a witness? Yes. Well, it also happens at movie theaters. We experienced this over the holiday break. Uh, we have, um, uh, some of families really like to go to movies. Uh, and we uh, took the opportunity to take our kids to see the new Star Wars movie. Um, and uh, as I was uh, logging on to buy some tickets in advance, you know, I hear the voice, Make sure you get Row D. What's in Row D? Oh, no. Well, that's where you can sit with handrails in front of you. It's the first row in the second section where you don't have any seats right in front of you, and I like to put my, my feet up, and we've become, you know, so familiar with the theater that we like to go to, that unless we have our favorite seat, and if somebody's actually, lo and behold, sat in row D, five, six, seven, and 8, in the four seats right in front of that, then we become dissatisfied with the experience. Um, it's not enough that we're in out of the snow, literally, in a warm and climate-conditioned building with 4K laser projectors and Lucasfilm sound system sitting next to all of our family that we don't get to normally see with hydrogenated popcorn in our laps, fully hydrogenated, shelf-stable popcorn. All of that, it really, all those things kind of fade, and they become what we expect, and only the fact that somebody was in seats D, 5, 6, 7, and 8 becomes magnified and becomes the problem. What's good and what's amazing starts to become dull and original, unoriginal, and the things that frustrate us become magnified. We, we see this at, at theme parks. How many of you like to ride roller coasters? You like to ride roller coasters over and over and over again, um, and they stop being quite as thrilling after like the 50th time you've gone on Colossus, right? (laughs) Until you get to experience it with someone new for the first time. Then all of a sudden you get to re-experience it, not with a familiar spirit, but through the eyes of someone new. Right, and I got that opportunity. My Joshua finally reached 48 inches, and he got to go on the, the big daddy roller coasters. Um, and so the, the Colossus stopped being a familiar coaster, and I could experience it again through his eyes, and it was special again, right? You know, we can also experience this in relationships, in friendships, or in marriage. We can allow... A familiar spirit to take over, where the things that we used to admire about somebody, their faithfulness to us, how hard they work, um, how they cook or how they clean or how they take care of or how they all the, the or their their creativity or the things that we like, we start to expect all of those good things as part of the baseline, and only the things that annoy us begin to be magnified. I mean, that's why, have you ever wondered why in the book of Acts, Paul had to confront the familiar spirit? Is that ever odd to you? It's because what's familiar, when we allow a familiar spirit, it actually talks us out of of the greatness and the beauty of the good things that we've come to just expect, and it highlights only the negative things. And most dangerously, we can experience over-familiarity with God. We can experience it with church. We can experience it with his, with his kingdom. We can experience it with his word. We think we, we've come to expect worship with the right songs at the right volume, lights at the right levels, you know, Preachers that that deal with certain passages that we like and we know and all the good things, and we we want the, the food and the coffee to be fresh and hot and all the different things. We we expect all the good things become part of the baseline, and only the things that annoy us stick out. And we lose sight to value the sacredness and the beauty of God's people dwelling together in harmony and the presence of God that is with us. We read over passages of scripture and we think we know the passages so well that they've become dull and unoriginal. And we start arguing about little and insignificant things and we allow, we make room, we give place to a familiar spirit. And so the kingdom, yes, we've heard the kingdom of God a lot. We've heard the invitation to the kingdom a lot. But could it be possible That we've allowed a familiar spirit to make the things of God and the people of God and the kingdom of God almost dull and unoriginal in our eyes. And we're going to unpack and look through the gospel of Matthew over the coming weeks and reacquaint ourselves with the sacredness and the blessing and the reward and the, the beauty, the majesty, the glory of God's kingdom. And we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. This is the first place in the New Testament where the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens is announced. So if you have your Bibles with with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 10. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A common passage. Probably many of you have read it. And it's almost become, again, familiar to us. But there was... And we, we lose sight of the spectacle of what just happened. Here is... A man who does not did not look like anyone who was in that region he wasn 't dressed like anyone uh, he was he didn 't eat the same food as everyone else he i mean this guy looked unkept he was clothed in animal hair he had no qualifications he had no staff role at a church uh, he had he 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 had no influence or advantage or um, he hadn't paid his dues. He he hadn't done his time. there There was nothing about John the Baptist, so to speak, that would earn him the right to speak to the nation of Israel in the minds of those who were there. And when he came in preaching, there was something so significant and so articulate and so anointed about what he was saying that pricked the hearts of people and these people weren't these people were were the children of Israel these people were the ones that had been used to following the religious customs and the ri- rituals that were set forth by the Pharisees they had been used to dealing with sin uh, by going through a ceremony and a festival and bringing a sacrifice and bringing different things and that's how you dealt with it and And they had been used to this process, this this culture that had been established. And John was not even ceremonially clean. John was was not, he was in no way qualified to even come and share in those ceremonies that were happening. And yet when he came announcing, it was so unfamiliar, it was so... It was so pointed and so articulate that people left their, their daily lives. They, they Instead of going to where they were going, they came out to the river and they repented. They laid down their former lives, the things that had been happening before. This was a spectacle, and it was such a spectacle that the people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we'll get to them in a minute, They came out to see what is going on. This this was a threat. This was not supposed to happen. Why did God ask and need or, or put in his plan to have John the Baptist announce the coming of the Messiah, that the kingdom of God was at hand? Because there were already plenty of prophecies. There were already plenty of evidence um, that had been spoken about in the prophets about the Messiah that Jesus would in fact fulfill and prove that he was the son of God and the son of man, the promised Messiah. Why did John the Baptist, why was John the Baptist appointed as, as the one who would announce the coming of God's kingdom? Well, simply because I believe one one reason is that repentance is not popular. Repentance is not popular. I mean, how many of you are good at apologizing? How many of you enjoy being wrong? How many of you like to have your faults pointed out? How many of you like finding that you're wrong, that you're facing the wrong direction, that you're working under false assumptions, that you, the thing that you thought you believed or the thing that you thought you were right about you aren't actually right about? Right? Repentance is, is not popular, but our, our aversion to repentance also presents in different ways. Right, the groups in this text are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, oftentimes we lump them together as one group, but really the Pharisees were the traditionalists of their day, while the Sadducees were more social and more secular. The Pharisees were ceremonially religious and pious leading all of the the rituals for fasting and tithing and the uh, sacrifices and the offerings in the temple. And while the wealthy Sadducees controlled the, quote, the temple business that Jesus cleaned out, these two groups, actually, they usually fought each other for control and influence in the nation. But when it came to opposing Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom, The Pharisees and Sadducees united forces and they formed an alliance of religious and political power to delegitimize what they deemed a mutual threat. You know, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when we believe we have an advantage or we believe we've paid our dues or we've earned some right or privilege or role or, or we, we've done our time, we, it's our turn. When we believe we have an advantage, we don't like finding out our credentials are no longer valid. And on the flip side, when we believe we have a disadvantage, when we feel like we deserve a deal or a shortcut or a break, We don't like to find out that we also have to admit that we're wrong. It seems unfair. You know, as I mentioned, we we got to spend some time at Magic Mountain, and really theme parks are micro economies of privilege and really appealing to our, our, our worst natures. I mean, there are the Daily Pass people. There are gold memberships. There are platinum memberships. There are diamond memberships. There are diamond elite memberships. And when you pull up to enter the park in your car, yes, there are, there's the lines, the car lines for the daily pass people. But then, you know, for us kind of middle of the road gold membership people, we go into this line. But if you have a family member that's a platinum member, then you can go in this line. And when you finally get up to the front, you have the opportunity to buy preferred parking and you don't have to take the tram with all the riffraff from the edge of the parking lot to the front. Or you could buy preferred plus parking, where you can get the first or the second row. Or if you're really special, you can buy valet parking, But it doesn't stop there. Then, with your Diamond Elite membership, you can go through the secret security line and only spend five minutes getting a body cavity check instead (laughs) of 35 minutes with everyone else. And then when you eventually get into the park, you realize that there are people who have spent money to get fast passes, and you only have to wait 50% as long in line. Or there are others that have gotten super fast passes where they only have to wait they they get 75% of their weight cut out. Or if you are willing to spend over $100 per person per day, you can get the ultra fast pass and you can avoid 90% of the line and be the target of of irritation and frustration of everyone standing in the regular line as you keep walking by, right? I mean, and, and you you wonder why in this, the theme parks that are supposed to be this place of joy and fun, everyone's walking around and mad at the person for being able to go faster and trying to cut in line and get forced and irritated at the people in the fast pass line and the diamond deletes and the golds and the platinums and how long it takes to get into security. And I mean, it's an economy that plays on really the worst parts of us. You know what? In the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not magic. The kingdom is real and amazing. But there are no gold memberships. There are no platinum memberships. There are no diamond memberships. There's no diamond elite memberships. There's no preferred parking. There's no preferred plus parking. There is no valet parking. There are no fast passes. There is one line and it's the best line and when you go through the security checkpoint in the kingdom it's not your talents or your merits or anything else when you're asked to empty your pockets of everything that you have you don't get it back on the other side you your admission is repentance and we read that word so many times in scripture that we have become unfamiliar with repentance. We are unfamiliar. It, it, we are unfamiliar with it in practice. Has our religious overfamiliarity with repentance actually bred contempt for it in practice? Well, the meaning of of repentance really comes from the Greek word metanoia, and it literally means that means in Greek literature when it was written, it literally means to change your mind. But in the biblical meaning, also implies the fruit of changing your mind, so it would include change of direction. So, changing your mind will result in stopping our movement in one direction. But the biblical meaning of repentance means that we've not only stopped, but we do an about-face, we turn and face another direction, and we start going that way. Imagine you are standing in a circle of people. You're camping. You're out in the woods. It's dark. You can hear the crickets buzzing, the, star, the, the sky's full of stars, but it's really, it's, it's dark. There's no moon. And there's a campfire in the middle of the circle, and everyone, you're all holding hands, in in a circle around this campfire but instead of facing the fire you're all have your hands facing away from the fire and if you what can you see from here what am i looking into cuz i've got a bunch of bright lights at my back what am i what am i looking what what is the thing that i see that i look into i am looking into my own shadow into my own darkness I'm looking into the darkness out there. I can't even see the people next to me because my eyes aren't accustomed to the light. They're accustomed to darkness. I can experience that there is light, but I can't see it. I'm facing the darkness. Now, imagine if I turn around, right, and I'm facing the light. You no longer see only darkness. When you turn toward the light, your shadow, your own darkness is behind you. And when you turn toward the light, you can now see the other people who are standing with you. And you can see that the light is shining on everyone and that you are all connected in its radiance. So making the decision to turn around, to turn away from shadow, to face the light, this is metanoia. This is repentance. But what I want to get at is that repentance is not just the security checkpoint to get into the kingdom. It's not just a one-time event. Repentance or metanoia is a daily posture and a practice. Well, what do I mean by a posture and a practice? Well, there is no birth into the kingdom without responding to the call for salvation, renouncing your sin and turning from your own shadow of darkness toward the light of Christ the Savior. Acts 3.19 says, and now you must repent and turn back to God so that your sins will be removed and so that times of refreshing will stream from the Lord's presence. There is, renunciation is the posture inside. Reversal is the practice. Say that with me, posture and practice. Posture and practice. So when I began to repent And repentance was a season of time for me. That birthing was a season of time. I repented from my drug addiction. Well, I renounced that in my heart. But then the reversal was I took all my paraphernalia out into the parking lot, I poured lighter fluid on it, and I set set it on fire, watched it burn up, and never went back again. There is a renunciation inside, but then there is also a reversal of practice. I renounced Many of the lusts that were in my flesh, that were I I I fed and I stewed on this melancholy, romantic, secular music. That that and I'm not saying that all secular music is bad or that anything or not to listen. I'm, don't go there. I am I am saying for me it was a stronghold, and I went there and it, and it made me. I wanted to lose myself in it. Well, I renounced. I don't want to feel angry and melancholy over this, this, this deeply like forlorn romanticism that was just prevalent uh, in this music. I renounced it inside. But the reversal was I took my 200 CD collection and I microwaved each one of them <laughs> and watched them explode. There was a posture, a renunciation inside, but there was also a reversal, a practice that accompanied that. I know that's funny. It really happened. My wife witnessed that. We were not even dating at that time. Yes. There is also no growth in the kingdom without our obedience to Jesus' commandments and a childlike responsiveness as a disciple of Jesus yielding to the teaching of God's word. James one twenty one says, "So this is why we abandon everything morally impure and all forms of wicked conduct. Instead, with a sensitive spirit, we absorb God's word, which has been implanted within our nature. For the word of life is power to continually deliver us." the The posture is submission. The practice is teachability. Like when we we when we do our 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 devotions, our bedtime blessings with our kids at night. Um, we, that we're, we're going through the book of Proverbs um, almost on repeat. And so right now, Proverbs, last night, Proverbs 16, 22, and 23 um, goes, it talks about there's nothing more appealing than winsome words. Words that are life-giving coming from a heart of wisdom that brings sweetness to the souls around us and inner healing to the spirits around us. There's nothing more appealing than these winsome words. And the posture to receive that is, Lord, where where have I been facing my own shadow, my own darkness? Where have I had my back to you with my words? Where have I been critical and condescending? And I hear those words, the words that I've spoken either that day or in the coming, in, in the preceding days. And then the practice is, Lord, I want my words to be winsome, I want my words to be sweet, to bring, um, to bring a sweetness to the souls around us, to bring inner healing to spirits, and then to begin to walk that out, to practice it, to be teachable, to allow that, you know what, your habits can change, my habits can change. That is the, the posture and the practice of repentance in our daily life as we open the scriptures. But there is also no lifelong increase of fruit as a citizen of the kingdom without our willingness to accept the Holy Spirit's correction and guidance. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, The Holy Spirit of God has sealed you in Jesus Christ until you experience your full salvation. So never grieve the Spirit of God or take for granted his holy influence in your life that that phrase holy influence in your life is not in your favorite reading chair when you are, have quiet and there's no kids running around and there's nothing distracting going on and you're, you're not fighting a cough or anything and you have, you know, this pristine condition where you've opened and you're, the birds are f- chirping at the sunrise and everything is perfect uh, or you're, you're in your time of prayer and there's nothing agitating or nothing difficult going on and, and th- this is not, th- that's not the time, What does it look like to bring repentance or that metanoia, that that posture and that practice into your daily life? It's the holy influence. Will you receive and cooperate with the Holy Spirit's holy influence in your conversations, your arguments, with your spouse, with your friends, with your kids, with your coworkers, with messy situations, with your friends at school? Will you cooperate with the holy influence of the Holy Spirit. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a very passionate argument with a brother in Christ over things that were very important to both of us. And we were, we were, getting, we were getting into it. We were and, and not at each other like name-calling, but we were passionately disagreeing About how things like how we were reading what was going on and what was to come, and we were very passionate. And in the middle of that, uh, in the middle of that argument, or really towards um, what turned out to be towards the end, um, this brother brought to my attention something that I had said a few days earlier, and it was in a group setting. And I thought, did I really say that? And then he started to explain the. The, the perceived intentions behind what I had said that, and I thought, I, I don't think I was thinking that, but it probably wasn't too far off base from thinking that I had done previous to that moment, and all of a sudden, I start to feel the holy influence of the Holy Spirit. And so in that moment, in your everyday life, when you are in arguments, the Holy Spirit will come to you and bring his holy influence in your life. And you will have a choice to make whether you want to win the argument and stay facing your own shadow or whether you will cooperate and be shapeable, even if it means raising the flag and casting your cares and saying, win or lose this argument, I am turning and I'm responding. I'm cooperating to this holy influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, I raised the flag and I said, you're right. I was wrong. I was wrong to have said that. I was wrong. Whether I thought those things, it doesn't matter. And, but I was wrong. Please forgive me for hurting you in that way. Please forgive me for hurting you. And it was without equivocation, without justification. With repentance, there is no justification. You don't get to bring your stuff with you over that line. You can't say, well, he made me do it or she made me feel that way or I got up on the wrong side of the bed or all the reasons, 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 justifications and everything. You know what? All of that stuff doesn't make a hill of beans difference. When you repent, you unequivocally acknowledge what you are doing and out of the motivation and the intention of your heart that is wrong, you say, yes, I am facing my own shadow and the darkness in this, in this area, and I am choosing to cooperate and turn. There is no justification. You don't get to take your stuff over that line. You unequivocally repent. And when you turn towards that light, you know, there is, at the end of that argument, really I don't know who won or lost the argument, but what I can say is is that the Holy Spirit came in, the holy influence, and there was a unity that came that took that conversation to a completely different place than it ever would have gone. And it probably didn't matter really as much what we were arguing about in the first place. That's real. And we'll find that when we are willing to take the posture and the practice of repentance into our daily life. We're not turning to face a a kingdom that's a place that's far off. We're turning to face the kingdom that's a person, the son of God. Jesus is the king and he's the kingdom. The kingdom was near because the kingdom was here. That's why John the Baptist could say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven is among us, is at hand. The kingdom was near because the king was here. And his presence, the presence of Jesus, introduces a power, the power of the kingdom of God that that means a new world of potential hope for us. Not, Not just once at a past point in our history where we turned or went through the security checkpoint and After we die, we get something. We are turning to receive the kingdom every day. To be inheritors of the kingdom today. The kingdom refers to God's sovereign rule in the universe. And he is the king of the heavens, but more specifically in this text, we find it refers to the entry of God's long anticipated Messiah, the promised son of David, who would not only be the savior and the deliverer and the king of Israel, but for all people. All nations, tribes, and tongues were promised recipients of this hope. And by declaring the kingdom at hand, John the Baptist was announcing that the rule of God's king was about to overthrow the power and the rule of all evil, both human and hellish, and that further the kingdom of darkness would be confronted and death and deprivation and disease and destruction levied by satanic power would begin to be overthrown. When you turn, you are receiving God's sovereign rule and all the blessing and the reward and the promise and everything that he deserves. You're receiving it into your own life in that moment every day. The kingdom is among us because the king is among us. As God's king, Jesus offers the blessing of God's rule. Now available to bring life to every human experience. The kingdom is at hand. The way we receive the kingdom, the way we received the kingdom before, the way we receive the kingdom today is by turning from our own shadow and facing the king. Yes, our posture, we renounce things. We submit to him. We cooperate with him and our practices of reversing and becoming teachable and shapeable. Let us sing to that end that truly Christ the King would be formed.